welcome to episode three of What in the World with me, your host, Ollie Dennett. Today, I'm going to get into a whole host of different things. This is everything from comedy and stand-up comedians as I speak to Hull's finest Jack Gledo as I talk everything from heckling, aspirations that he has in the future and also how he deals with famous encounters he's previously had. And it's amazing to see because you, you know, know these people and the friends and it, it kind of changes the state of the way you look at fame as well. Because when you're a kid and you see these famous comedians and everyone, you're like, wow incredible and now when I turn TV on nearly every day someone I know is on it. I will also be speaking to a few people regarding what they believe on the NHS and their 1% pay rise. I think it's extremely pathetic after everything they've done over the last year it's disgusting. And I'll also be speaking to Megan who is an NHS key worker who has worked relentlessly throughout the last year in this pandemic. I think personally it's staff we really just don't have the staff at all it's the staff they have got are amazing and they do, they do a great job, but they are being worked to the bone. However, first things first, before we get on to today's podcast, did you listen and tune in last time? I was discussing everything gym-related with Jason at PT, who is currently out of work because of the lockdown, and with him I spoke everything about charity work he's done, how he got into personal training in the first place, and also his background from where he's come from and his journey to where he is today. If I'm if I'm pushing myself or I'm doing a challenge, you know, I get the benefits doing a challenge, pushing my limits and seeing where I'm at and put to raise awareness for a cause, to raise money. And um, you know, I've, I've I've raised money for for cancer research, United We Can. There's a palliative care unit in Leicester called Loros, I raised money for them as well. So if you want to hear a further insight into what he has to say, please check out episode two of What in the World. So let's get down to what has actually been going on. Unfortunately, as time moves forward, there are some people that we've lost along the way. Let's hear from just a few inspirations that have previously influenced and affected our lives in more ways than one. died at 65 after a long battle with throat cancer. The rocker's son, Wolf, sharing the news on Twitter today, calling him the best father he could ever ask for. In fact, Wolf became the bassist for the group Van Halen in 2006. Eddie Van Halen reportedly diagnosed with cancer more than a decade ago. In 2012, he was voted number one of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Van Halen are the godfathers that they they straddle between Jimi hendrix cream and guns and roses van halen's right in the middle uh first records come out in the early 70s um they are just on fire and eddie's guitar playing is in new heights as you mentioned in the lead-in he was voted the number one guitar player of all time huddle enrique to maradona Different class. Different class! When they talked about the great players of world championship football, this man will be on a pedestal. Diego Armando Maradona. Bilardi, the manager, wants them back 
to play on again. But everyone in the stadium, the England fans included, the commentators, the press bench, everybody on their feet in acclamation of one of the greatest goals that the World Championship has seen. All from the feet and brains of one man. Well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to narrow it down a bit. As far as I can make out, all a man needs to sleep with you is a sense of humour. Huh. Mine needs a sense of humour. What do yours need, Anna? Sick. Frank doesn't. But he takes his glasses off, though. Well, he could keep them on for you, couldn't he? As long as he remembered to put the bag on your head. So much you like, I know I still fancies me. What has? <laughs> now who's jealous? OK. If he fancies you so much, how come he didn't try it on last night, then? Don't you worry. If I'd given him the slightest bit of encouragement, he'd have jumped at the chance. Uh. More like the other way around. You know what your problem is? What? You know Frank still loves me. And whatever you do, he won't love you. Never. Not in the same way. I mean, look at you. Frank left you. Your boys left you. And now Roy's left you. You think Frank wants you? Mutton dressed as lamb? You cow! Get out of my pub. Baba? Yes, my son? Tell me a story. Which one? The story of home. The Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. A mantle passed from warrior to warrior. Your Highness? Now because your friend murdered my father, I also wear the mantle of king. So I ask you, as both warrior and king, how long do you think you can keep your friend safe from me? You can be mentored by people who aren't alive. 100%. Because their stories still live. These muses are here. It's important to learn from them. Because you realize there are people just like us. They made mistakes just like us. And they kept going. And we can do the same. Walton can tip it. Bryant with the save. Oh, you got to get a shot here. Final seconds. Bryant for the win. Bang! As Kobe Bryant at the buzzer in overtime gets the win for Los Angeles. I did some wrong, but I'm always right. So I know how to shoot, and I know how to fight. Tell you once, don't tell you twice. I'm real discreet, like a thief in the night. Shake it, shake it, shake it. She like the way that I dance. She like the way that I move. She like the way that I rock. She like the way that I woo. Billy Jean, Billy Jean. Christian Dior, Dior. I'm up in all the stores. The votes have been counted and verified, and I can now reveal the Strictly Come Dancing champions. 2014 are Caroline L. We've laughed with you, we've cried with you, but most of all, we've fallen in love with you. Thanks, Bill Mix. Callers. Now, judges, before we leave, you probably all know by now that Louis and I are man and wife. What? Yes. Yeah, sorry, Ollie. Uh, yes. We got married in Vegas at Louis' judge's house. I mean, she it was likes a older men. Uh, but now I've got an announcement to make. What, you're pregnant? Cooper. What then? She likes older men.
I'll take Keen and Mark, okay, and also so I want John and Jennifer. Do I get a slice of One Direction? I don't own them. Oh. 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 But it was a great comeback. <laughs> it's a great comeback. <laughs> Thanks, judges. Thank you very much. Oscar-winning actor Sean Connery has died. Connery is best known for playing the British secret agent James Bond across more than a half dozen films. He was 90 years old. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objections. Looks like you're out to get me. It's an idea at that. Too bad you have to go. Just as things were getting interesting. Yes. Tell me, Miss Trench, do you play any other games? I mean, uh, besides Chemin de Fer. Hmm, golf. Amongst other things. More afternoon then. Tomorrow? Mm. See now. And uh, we could have dinner afterwards, perhaps? Sounds tempting. May I um, let you know in the morning? Splendid. My number's on the card. So there we are, Sean Connery, James Bond there, but also Eddie Van Halen, Maradona, Barbara Windsor, Chadwick Boseman, Kobe, Pop Smoke, and also Caroline Flack. Very, very important figures across so many different industries that unfortunately couldn't be here with us anymore. As we move forward, there's always, always going to be change. Some people don't like it, some people adapt to it. However, this year and the past year has been quite a lot of change for almost everyone. And whether that means you're already established in an industry and then something falls through, which means you can't exactly be in that position when you come back to it. Or even if you're starting out in an industry trying to get to somewhere, there's always been a little bit of a problem for most people around the globe. However, there's always some sorts of people that we always look to for a bit of a laugh, whether that be comedians, a YouTube video, or maybe a bit of both. I spoke with Jack Gledo, an award-winning comedian, on everything from virtual tours, what makes him stand out from the rest, but also challenges that he's faced. My name is Jack Gledo, and I, 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 say I used to do comedy, I still do, but it's been that long since I've done it on an actual stage that I don't know if I can still say that. Like, it takes people to remind me that that was my job. At the minute, my job seems to be just sat around watching Netflix. And a good headband as well. That seems <laughs> yeah. to be there. I'm <laughs> sure you've got a few of them because that can't be used seven days a week. Yeah. <laughs> or can it? I suppose if you're at home, well, no one knows. Em em embarrassingly, when you said that, I, I realised that I've probably not washed this in months. But let's go with your theory. Of, <laughs> yeah, I've got loads. Yeah. Let's just think there's... Face masks going all around the world at yeah. the moment that are probably a lot, lot worse. But anyway, <laughs> back to the point. What made you pursue a career in stand-up or comedy? What made you think, yes, that's that's me? 
I think it's I've always liked being the center of attention and and making people laugh. Like, do you know when you're out with your mates and or if you're in a WhatsApp group and you send a joke and everyone laughs and stuff, like mm. you you feel on top of the world. You're like, yeah, I'm smashing it. And I was like, I'd love to do get paid to do that with strangers. Um, it's just from I used to do magic when I was a kid, so I kind of always done it. It's kind of there's never been a question that I wouldn't perform really since the, about the age of eight. So it's quite strange, really. But yeah, I've kind of always wanted to do it. And you were on TV, weren't you? Very early, very early age. I think it was a breakfast time show. Yeah, very like. I was on like local TV and that, and I, I did have little spots and stuff. I nearly got like some big TV when I was a kid, but that never came to fruition, oh, which really? I'm quite happy with, um, because I don't know, you don't know what path that can kind of take you down and stuff. And um, I get, I'm, I'm kind of happy that it didn't take me down the magic route because I was a magician. So if I started off getting TV work as a magician, I'd have probably carried on with that ilk, even though it would have helped me, I guess, now in me wanting to get more presenting work and stuff. I don't think I'd have ever found my comedy voice sort of thing. Okay, fair enough. I mean, you say you're quite upfront, cheeky, chappy sort of guy. Have you always sort of taken that risk, thought of, oh, I'll send that WhatsApp message instead of, oh, I'll hold back and delete it? Have you always been quite upfront with how you are as a person and what you wanted to do? I think so. I think you've, you've got to... I'm, I'm never rude or offensive, I don't think. Um, or if I am, I feel bad about it if it is. But I think you can... If you're a bit of a cheeky, uh, cheeky lad, um, which sounds weird saying like, as a middle-aged... Well, not middle-aged, 26. No, no, no. Middle-aged. <laughs> I, I hope it's not middle-aged anyway. But um, mid-20s, like, oh, I'm a cheeky chappy. It sounds a bit strange, but, yeah. like, yeah, I think... In terms of taking it too far, I, I don't think... There is sometimes lines, but I try and never cross them. Or if you do cross them, there has to be a reason and uh, in why you cross them, I guess. Okay. So when you sort of see that judgment, do you take that into your comedy work itself and the way that you write? Yeah, sometimes. Like, sometimes I, I think I can defend a joke and sometimes when I don't think I can, I kind of, like, okay. Because everyone makes mistakes as well, especially when you get heckled. Sometimes you can't control what comes out of your mouth. If someone heckles you and you say something, you're like, that's out in the well now. I can't take that back. Oh, like, no. so it sometimes it's it's difficult in that sense. But then you, you get better. The more you do it, you get better at controlling that. Well, so sometimes how, you do something like that. How have you dealt with heckling? Because that's sort of an aspect that only comes from the the people that don't want you to succeed. I don't, I don't, I don't well, really know how to put it, but you know well, what I mean? They yes just want to no. cause trouble. Yeah, some hecklers do. Some hecklers do, but a lot of hecklers just want to be involved and they think they're helping and they're part of the show and banter. And sometimes they are and it adds, it helps. And sometimes it doesn't. Because I do some bits where I get people actually out the audience on stage. So... I, I actually like the back and forth because it keeps me on my toes. It makes me come up with stuff that I didn't think of before. And so I do like the interaction. But yeah, if someone's just shouting like a swear word at you, you're like, what what can you do with that? Like yeah. you can't do anything with that. 
it's just sort of a blunt one-liner or one, yeah. one word, as it were, and then it just sort of fizzles out like a failed exactly. firework, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you were talking there a bit about what you present on stage, maybe grab some other people up. You have quite a, not outstanding costume, but once people see you, they kind of know, oh, yeah, that's Jack. Yeah, I kind of, it took a few years to kind of get, I was like, oh, I'll be the braces guy, I'll wear braces, and it just makes you stand out a bit. So people say, I saw a comedian, oh, who was he? He was a weird guy with braces. Like, And a lot of people do wear braces and stuff, but I just kind of tried to, brand it a bit I don't know if I'm going to keep up with that after lockdown because I've got very comfortable in uh joggers and tracksuits for the last year and I just I've got some really nice ones that I just want to show off to the world it's got a few bits of brands that have come yeah. through on Depop or something because you can't yeah. actually go to a local shop yeah exactly but um a lot of people such as yourself are starting out in the industry maybe in stand-up or any sort of profession that they have but in what way would you say you do it differently I do, a lot of people kind of say I've, I've got a bit of an old school style um and I think I have and I haven't I, I think it's because I'm northern and I I like like Markham and Wise type stuff I like all all the my I did a show last year all about me wanting to be Mr Saturday Night like the big Saturday Night Entertainer and stuff and you don't really get a lot of stand-ups new stand-ups now that come out they want to be truth tellers and talk about politics and and then there's me going i just want to be stupid like so i know which one i relate to a bit more <laughs> <laughs> so it's like and I, plus i don't think me coming on doing truth telling material would people would be like what are you on about go on just do a silly dance jack like so they obviously already have a little bit of a forward thinking about how you may act, but you kind of take mm. it to a whole nother level. <laughs> Whether yeah, that be exactly. with braces, props such as a scooter, I'm sure you've got quite a few more things lined up for after lockdown as well. Well, well, I must start writing, actually. It's it's getting to the point where um, I'm like, oh, we've got, but gigs are opening back up now. I've got to pick up a pen and paper and remember what my job is and write some jokes. I think the best thing about something such as comedy you can just sit there in you can be alone in your room all you need is a desk some pen and paper yeah. and you've got that and then you can just flow with it other people they need like to send emails other people need to respond give a yes give a no whereas you can just do your own thing and perform to pretty much anyone true I th but i think as well there's still a lot of admin involved in comedy and like booking gigs, getting gigs, and but in terms of like writing, I'm not one to sit down and write. I struggle with that quite a bit. Like if someone says, "Sit down for an hour and write some jokes," I'd be like, "Can I just do something else?" Like I, I kind of walk about life, and then I'll think about stuff all the time. I'll have notes, and then just one day I'll have a big burst of energy and I'll write it all down, sort of thing. Um. And it's something I kind of beat myself up a bit about a lot because I'm like, oh, you should be writing more, you should be working more. But every, everyone works different. There's some comedians that don't even spend time writing. They just go on stage and work it all out in their head. So I don't know. Like, it's hard to define how I do it or why I do it, some people would, would say. As long as it's there, I suppose that's all that matters. Yeah, but yeah, true. Has there been a time, obviously you said previously that you were starting to get into the magician sort of 
aspect of things. Has there been a time where you haven't really thought about magician, co comedian, sort of that creative aspect, or have you always been around that? Uh, yeah, I, always. And it's quite sad, that really, isn't it? I've never thought about anything else. I mean, I, obviously, we went to the same university. I, did, I went to do media. And that, but that was mainly so I could move to Manchester and do more comedy stuff. And the fact that doing a media course, it comes with the script writing, the filming, and the contacts as well. I, I'm lucky enough now that I, I knew a lot of people that, that go in there. And people that in the future, like yourself, who might go on to like bigger jobs in the media industry, and then I can come back and say, all right, Ollie, do you remember that time we did that podcast in, uh, in the lockdown? Now you're the commissioner of the BBC, can I be unsure? So it's, it's things like that. That's true. I mean, lockdown is such an iconic thing that we're just sort of living through day to day, but we're going to be thinking, wow, in two years, yeah. even two years' time, maybe even next year, just when things start to get back to normal, like, wow, what did we actually do? I, I think it won't even be that long. I think it'll be a month a month after when normality is back, we'll all be in the pub and we'll go, that didn't happen, did it? That didn't happen. Did that happen? I mean, we think about and reminisce a few things, but has there been any challenges that have come along the way, whether that be COVID or whether it be other people, whether it be your ability to stop? You must get a mind block at some stage as well. A constant mind block, to be honest. Like, um, <laughs> it's, it is... Like comedy comes with its own thing because there seems to be like a certain career path in comedy where you say you go to Edinburgh Festival, you do a show, then you get picked up for telly and stuff. And that don't really it happens to some people, but not mass on a massive scale. And like personally, I think this lockdown I needed, I needed a break from comedy because I, I kind of lost the love a bit from it. I kind of went at it solid for like so long that I stopped stop to take track of why I did it and why I enjoy it, I think. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's always challenges. It's challenges with any job, isn't they? Like, people think that just because it's, like, an amazing dream job, you're never going to want... To, like, I, I've worked in retail. That when I don't, Sometimes I didn't want to go into into Next and pick shoes up. I say sometimes, all the time. But sometimes you don't want to go gigging Wigan. But you've got to go do it. You've got to go. I don't know why I picked Wigan. <laughs> if, if anyone listening from Wigan going, oh, you don't bloody come gig here then. Um, go back to Hull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get back in your box, lad. But, um, yeah, you said there about all the different places and other people that may come in and out your journey as in your career. But has there been anyone that you've sort of looked up to and idolised? Well, I've always kind of said people like Lee Evans and Lee Mack are, are the people that... I think Lee Evans is one of the first proper stand-ups I saw oh, within so that transition of... Just generally. Oh, oh terrible, terrible. Terrible, <laughs> can right. We cut, can, we, can we cut that bit out of your own podcast? Um, no, yeah, so you looked up I to think, Lee Evans. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I think I'm nicking that next... Uh, I'm nicking that gag. I actually really like it. That's... <laughs> If it's those are the two I'm people like that you're on about. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that those I always used to say like Mark and Wires and people like that, but it's only like the classic sketches of them. But yeah, and then the more you get into it, you find more niche stand-ups and but I don't really watch much stand-up anymore because you don't want to be too heavily influenced by it to the point mm. where 
you do similar material, same material. There's some yeah. jokes that you just crack up laughing at, surely, and then you're like, damn, that's so easy to even think about. Why didn't I think about that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that, like, it's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Like, yeah, all the time. <laughs> and I suppose the more you watch, the more you watch content, the more you sort of grab other aspects from other parts of life as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean. When you start in in anything, you kind of um, pick up styles. Like with comedy, you pick up, you kind of start off as a carbon copy of your favourite person and then you slowly bring your own identity to do it. And I still don't think I found my proper comic identity. I still think that's a learning curve. And even though I've been gigging like eight years, um, it's... It's a long, it's a long journey. Some people hit it straight away and they're straight on telly, straight on thing, straight touring. But I think for some people, it just takes longer to absorb it. And the longer you take it, it you're better. You get better. Every gig, you get better. It's like a pilot. It's pilot's hours. The pilot gets better every hour he drives in a plane. A comedian gets better every minute he is on stage. I, I think it's quite tough, though, especially with comedy, because... You, there's that literally millisecond, isn't it? After you tell the joke, you get an instant feedback. Is there a laugh? It's good. If there's no laugh, how do yeah. you de- how do, have you ever dealt with something like that before? Yeah, yeah. Everyone has gigs that don't go in their favour, um, and they're difficult. But that's kind of what makes you better and react better and realise, oh, that's not funny. Then what do I need to do to make that funny? Or is it just not funny? It is. It is hard though when someone, when you, especially when you think it's funny and you, you, you love the joke and then you tell it, and then people are like, "What? Is this guy all right? Is this meant to be the actual uh, punchline, or are we waiting yeah. for it?" Or, but who? I think. Who, a, yeah, I think a lot of it. You can, if you've got like a personality that you can, you can kind of get get away with it if someone's not funny as, as such you can kind of oh that one really good one oh anyway let's move on and and do it like that um so there is ways of getting around it but also if it's terrible the audience will let you know mm, i'm sure in more ways than one <laughs> yeah. but although there might be the sort of heckling or the silence there's also been technical faults as well hasn't there I've seen there was a time that you're on stage and the microphone literally unplugged and you were trying to sort everything out. How did you sort of improvise with that? How do you come across when things happen like that that you don't even expect? Well, they're, they're the moments that that I enjoy the most. And they're like, but that, that gig you're talking about, which is on YouTube, people, people thought that that was planned and that I did it on purpose. And to me, that's a compliment because it looks like I've, I've done it on purpose, but... Whenever it goes wrong, I've never planned it. But like, so someone can, oh, the way the way you structured that routine to make it look like it's gone wrong. I was like, no, it shouldn't have gone like that. But then it, it makes it funnier. It does make. I think people love stuff when it goes a bit wrong, and I do as well because it it kind of takes me out of the persona a bit, and I can just play around with it. Mm. And that sort of external perspective you, is sort of, well, I wouldn't say out-of-body experience, but obviously it's not in your control. No, yeah, that's perfect way of describing it, to be honest, yeah. When you're writing your sketches and doing sort of stories and narratives, because there has to be some sort of connection with it, 
How do you write off it? Is it past events, something that you've seen in other people's life, maybe some trends that are going around like TikTok? I've seen that you're quite big on that. I mean, I don't have it, so that's why I don't follow you, but you certainly get your content out there on that. But how do you sort of go around it? The way I do that is I think of an idea and I just kind of make it as soon as possible. But at the minute with TikTok, this is how strange TikTok is. People watching me react to a song I haven't heard before and people are loving it. And I'm like, yeah, but I do funny videos as well. <laughs> but people just like watching my face, listening to like weird song lyrics. Um, that's how strange the internet is. But ultimately, if that turns into building up an audience and a fan base, it's all it's all good. But in terms of comedy and stories and that, I, I'm quite gaggy. It's something I'm trying to do at the minute when I go back is tell more observational story stuff. Um, but I, I, I get scared if there isn't like a punchline because okay. like, just talking, I'm like, oh, got to get to the punchline so that I hear another laugh. I like regular laughs. Ah, that's good. I think every comedian likes laughs, but, you know, I want to... La- laughs are like likes on Facebook, I presume. That's sort of yes. how, how yeah, it exactly. goes. Yeah, with laughs. Like, like if, if you post a status on Facebook and it, it gets free likes, you can delete it. But you can't delete a joke that you've said on stage. If you say that and it's rubbish, you can't go, sorry, actually, only my mum and my auntie like this. I'm going to delete it. Mm, that's true I mean to target your audience do you have a specific audience in mind that you sort of target your jokes towards um usually the ones that are sat in front of me (laughs) fair enough I suppose they're sort of your judges your peers people Mm. that want to come and see you as well a whole host of different faces that you may or may not have seen before Mm. and um talking about different faces you performed at the Chortle student comedy event in 2017 but you became the runner-up of that. But how did you find doing that and balancing your degree together? Because you must have been here, there, everywhere. Yeah, like 2017, 2018 was one of my biggest like times in comedy because I was in loads of competitions. I was gigging every weekend, weekday. And yeah, and uh, juggling that with my course as well. Mm. Well, I, I took, I'll be honest, I took more focus on the comedy. The cast was, at that point, just uh, not that, not as important to me. Plus, the cast is fairly easy. There's, there's like, like that, that might sound like really thingy to say, but, like, to the point where I mean that you'd have to really make an effort to fail. Like, if, if it's something you're passionate about, it's easy to kind of put together, done, write about it, there you go. It's not like heart surgery or learning learning how to build a car. There's there's you're making a podcast or you're making a film. Like it's fairly like and saying that there's the world people that listened to it. What do you mean? I found it really hard. I don't want to offend anybody. Okay. I'm just talking about myself. I mean, within that there, you've got to collaborate with absolutely everyone. But mm. then fast forward one year, as you say, in 2018, you're at the Leicester Mercury Comedy Festival. Can you tell me a bit about that sort of journey, how you went on that? Well, that was amazing. The Leicester Comedy Festival basically have this big award called uh, the Leicester Mercury New Comedian Award. And it, it's been won by some of the biggest stand-ups we know. Um, and it's nominated by promoters and bookers. So you have to be asked to come and do it. And never in a million years did I think I'd be one of them. 
So just being in the competition was incredible. And I thought, wow, this is nice. This is a nice day out. And then to win it was like amazing. And it really, it really helped my career because it, it put me on the map a bit and made people book me more. But it didn't, it didn't change my career in terms of like people said, oh, you won that. So you're going to be on telly now. It doesn't really work like that. There's about three people in that competition that are all like quite big TV stars now. Um, like Rosie Jones, who was, um, we did loads of competitions together when we started kind of starting out. And now she's like on everything, you turn it on. And it's like, and it's amazing to see because you, you know, know these people and the friends and it, it kind of changes the state of the way you look at fame as well. Because when you're a kid and you see these famous comedians and everyone, you're like, wow. It's incredible. And now, when I turn TV on, nearly every day, someone I know is on it. So it mm. kind of, oh, it's just a job, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking about famous people there, you've actually featured on your podcast, talking about Lee Mack and not going out. We're on your one with Jack's Night In, <laughs> which yeah. is quite iconic. And that you featured a whole host of different people there, but Miles Jupp as well. How was it working with him? Oh, Miles is lovely. Yeah. Um, we spoke, yeah, that was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, we spoke for like nearly an hour and a half. I said it'll only take like 10 minutes, but we just, I think he was happy just to have something to do uh, in the peak of lockdown. Um, but yeah, he's a really, I've gigged with him. He did a Miles Jupp and Friends like charity show a couple of years ago, and that's where we met. And we share the same agent, so we, I know him in that sense, but um. He's a, he's, he's a lovely he's a lovely guy. Um, I've not really worked with him. More, they're the only few times I've worked with him, but he's, yeah. With, with all these people, like, the, I've never met someone that I'd say they are an awful person. Like, most most people are nice people. I mean, with 2020 in general, I'm, I think I remember seeing Miles Jupp on a panel show. I remember him from Balamori in that purple, yeah. in the pink house. That's not going to go away from my mind. That That's where Miles lives in my head. <laughs> I had, when I was doing, preparing the interview, I, I had a big whiteboard in my bedroom and I put on it, do not mention Archie the inventor because I, I was adamant that I would not mention it with him. However, yeah. did it? No, I didn't. I was very proud of myself. I'm sure yeah. that there's been a few interviews, I think mainly on the radio, actually, where they've said, oh, don't do this. I think it was with Young Blood or something where they said, mm. oh, don't mention about an ex. And then just at a slip of the tongue before a song was playing, bang, that's when you have to say it. And you just think, oh, my word. And I think maybe maybe in comedy, when you do a stand up and you get that heckle and you think, oh, I won't say this, I won't do that. Yeah. And then look, gone. It might just yeah, come out like yeah. that. But I was literally sat there yesterday watching past winners of the shows, like Eric Rushton from 2020. I don't know how much you've seen of this, but I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just sit here for 10, 20 minutes, try and get my feet for a little bit. And then next thing I know, I'm literally sat there the whole night watching different people, different things. And I just think, right, well, now I don't want to speak to anyone. I just want to focus on comedy. I find that as a yeah. consumer just coming into it sort of thing. But have you ever... Considered- That's really good, though, because I'm guessing there you discovered loads of stand-ups and styles that you'd never seen before, and you, you discover new yeah. people, and you're like, wow. Yeah, I-, I love it when people kind of... But then, like, because I've had a few people that have said to me, oh, I watched you, and then I became really interested in comedy. And then I'm like, I'm like a gateway drug to, to like other comedians. 
I think people go, oh, that's funny. I don't like you as much as I like all these other people, but thanks for getting me started. Yeah. I mean, that must be frustrating for you because you're kind of considering, oh, why aren't I prioritised over certain people? Do you know what I mean? People have their own different tastes, of course, but how have you found exactly. it? It's all, it's all about taste and, and, and it, it's taste, it's what you do, it's luck in this industry. I don't think you can ever be put down by it. You've just got to crack on and do what you're happy with and passionate about. And I've got an audience, like, it's a small audience probably, but I've got, I've got people that support me and like what I do, and that's all that matters. And it's just a case of building that up slowly. This world is changing as it is. Have you ever considered a virtual gig at all? At the moment, with things, I've, I've done many. I've got uh, loads this weekend as well. Um, I've done like ones for corporate companies. I had I had one booking for a company where there was like there's going to be a hundred people there. Here's a list of all the all the staff. Make jokes about them. So I worked on it. Made notes and jokes. Mm. Go to the meeting, expecting a hundred people, and there's six. And there's just me and six people on a Zoom, and I had to do comedy for 45 minutes. How did you find I mean, that? It was all right, but it's a bit weird. It's a bit weird, just someone just someone that they never know, me coming in going, hey, guys, how's it going? It, it's, mm. it's odd. But, um, yeah, some of them are good. Some of them are weird. Like, um, I did one the other week, which was I couldn't hear or see the audience it was just me on a stage in a comedy club looking straight down the barrel of a camera that was weird because all the normal stuff was there apart from a crowd so yeah it, it's weird and it's it's nice but it's not the same as being in a room with people laughing basically you, you would prefer it to go back to normal basically oh yeah definitely yeah. 100%. and um what is your ambition for the future is it anything towards getting that but, well, you've already had a break. Do you know what I mean? It's not exactly mm. like you need a big break, but in, in what direction do you see yourself going? Well, it's always, it's, it's, it's steps, in it? You, you kind of make steps and get better and get more gigs. And for me, it's just about being able to make a sustainable living from doing gigs and then everything else is on top. So if I've, like, I, I'm, I'm lucky that I can do tars to to a small level if i can grow them and make them bigger um if i can get like shows that we're pitching to try and get them on the radio on the telly if they come to fruition with scripts and ideas stuff like that really and presenting is something i'm i'm really want to get get into and again the stuff with that that are always working in the background acting stuff that I'm always applying for and it's it's basically you just need that one lucky break or, or that role that comes up that where you're perfect fit for it the, the casting director thinks you're a perfect fit for it you get it tick it might be a flop it might be brilliant you, you can't plan anything you've just got to kind of stumble along and hope that you can have a ha, have a good life as well you've got to enjoy yourself and you've got to have a world outside of comedy and all of this so would you ever get um, influence from stuff such as public places, maybe famous people, figures, at all like that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, often when I'm on a train and I'm just sat looking around, you kind of pick up ideas and or you get into situations where you're like, this could be a story. Like, So, yeah, just everyday life, you kind of pick up little tidbits and that, yeah. 
I mean, you say there you've been on been on a train traveling to X, Y, and Z. But where would you say is your not only maybe biggest venue that you performed at, but your favorite venue that you've performed at? I think Leicester and Hull. I did two big shows in like big theaters, doing my own like show, and they were amazing shows. Really, I like three or four hundred people in one room just laughing at you and specifically coming to see you is an incredible feeling. And you can get away with a bit more stuff. You can be, because they know you already. So you don't have to, like in a comedy club, when you come on and they haven't seen you before, you, you it's a battle because you've got to win them over. You've got to get that aspect. rapport. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas at a show, they're kind of already happy that you're there. So it makes it harder in this respect though, that then you've got to keep that energy level like where they're invested. Um, but yeah, I think Hull and Leicester, them theatre shows were amazing, yeah. Would you ever consider mo- moving down south maybe? Would you ever think that there's opportunities down there or is it just that the opportunities haven't presented themselves to you yet? I think, yeah, I'm always up for moving down south, but I think, one, it's a lot cheaper to live up north and it's two hours on a train. If you pick up that last minute job or like a, a TV gig, they'll sort your accommodation. They'll If, if they want you that bad, they'll, they'll, they've got you. So, yeah, I think you're fine with wherever you are to a certain extent. Obviously, it's difficult. If, if I wanted to be gigging every single night and do, doing stuff, London is a better place to be in that aspect. But in the same thing yeah I prefer being up north I I like London being like a fun trip like like it's a bit different I can go do a gig and stay in a hotel I can do a uh, West End show so yeah it feels a bit more like an event and a day trip literally like a little bit of a tour rather than oh this is just my own backyard but I've now got all these opportunities but I've also got that extra pressure to find the work because it's literally landing on my doorstep exactly There we are. Whether you like comedy or not, prefer the North or the South, Jack said it himself, he actually likes one of my jokes, and that was something I was not planning for. However, something I was planning for is to tell you what is actually going on in the world at the moment. Now, something the world is going through, according to the Daily Mirror, and this is, as I quote, the worst royal crisis in 85 years. And yes, if you haven't guessed it already, it's the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah. Now, although the media's job is basically just to get attention and to sell stories, I personally believe this is not the worst thing that's happened. With it only being in 2019 that the Queen's son, Prince Andrew, did an exclusive BBC interview regarding his connection and involvement with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. However, back to the Harry and Meghan interview, with comments such as being silenced by Buckingham Palace and Meghan claiming that she didn't want to be alive anymore. Now that is a huge statement to make, especially when you're in the royal family and have had a career in front of the cameras, especially in America. However, the reason this is an even bigger story is that not everyone believed her claims. One of these people being Piers Morgan. If you haven't heard already, he controversially stormed off Good Morning Britain as he was approached and confronted by comments regarding what he said about Meghan Markle. However, this is only his side of the story, but you might be thinking what are the royals thinking about themselves? 
Well, with Meghan saying that there were talks regarding how dark Archie's skin tone would be, the Queen is now on a personal mission to identify the royal that said this, as Meghan didn't disclose that information with Oprah. It's not even been a week since the interview aired in the UK, with it being released a day earlier in the USA. However, we will wait and see to find out what the impact and fallout there may be from this story. Now, another massive story that has impacted almost everybody in one way, shape or form is the story that has hit the headlines this week is the murder of Sarah Everard. The 33-year-old who worked as a marketing executive vanished after she left her friend's house in Clapham, London on the 3rd of March. One obviously being the fact that Sarah is a missing person and has vanished, but has later been discovered murdered by PC Wayne Cousins. He has now been arrested on suspicion of murder and also a separate allegation of indecent exposure. His job within the police was in the Met's Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, which is based in Westminster and on a day-to-day -day basis focuses on uninformed patrol duties of diplomatic premises. This has now sparked an online surge of the importance of keeping safe when outside and feeling safe in public. There has been the global hashtag of reclaim the streets to highlight this importance. I personally think both of these stories have an underlying connection of checking up on others for mental health purposes and for the safety in regards to Sarah. Speaking about health, something that was in the news this week was the pay rise of the NHS of only 1%. However, with the pandemic going on and the emergency services so highly considered at the moment, some people thought the 1% pay rise wasn't enough. So that led me to go and speak to the public to see what they had to say. I think it's extremely pathetic after everything they've done over the last year. It's disgusting. And I know that Boris Johnson's asking for money, but redoing his apartment is a disgusting little man. I hate him. I really despise that man. Who would you like to see in charge instead? Me, Jeremy Carbin. What do you reckon of the NHS pay rise of only 1%? Absolutely disgusting. And have you ever... Do you know anyone involved in this pandemic at all? My daughter-in-law, she's a nurse at Clumsall Hospital in intensive care, looking after Covid patients. And what have you missed most about normal life in about the last year? What have you found different or want to go back to normal the most? To be able to go out shopping, to, to go on holiday. And do you reckon that this vaccine passport is the only way that we can really get back to normal? How do you see it changing? I can't see it changing really, I can't. Do you reckon on June the 21st it will be normal or do you reckon the dates will change? No, I think it will change. I don't think it's going to end. My daughter-in-law said he's not going to do it. She's a nurse. How do you think she's finding working on the front line at the moment? She's very stressed, but she's working every hour, God send. So what do you think of the NHS pay rise of only 1%? Well, I find it a bit too low, but uh, yeah, that depends on the wages, isn't it? Because 1% for, I don't know, 4,000 a month is different to 1% for 1,000 a month. So yeah, it's a bit too low from my point of view. And do you reckon it should be the 12.5% that the NHS thought they would be given? At least somewhere in the middle, perhaps, because so many times we do ask for something, we don't get it. But at least somewhere in between, yeah? People should 
meet halfway. That's what I always think. And how do you reckon the government's money has been distributed already in this pandemic? Do you reckon it has been... I've got my opinion on that and I would not like to share that. (laughs) Definitely they need a pay rise for what they are doing and definitely that's a good thing but to be i just don't know like whether it's a good it's definitely better than nothing but i just really don't know because i don't have anyone from my friends who is working so i don't really know like from the first hand what it how it looks like but it's definitely better than nothing because the nhs themselves are getting a union together because they have to create about 35 million pounds for a potential strike what do you think of that it should come from government like no they definitely shouldn't do it like themselves yeah so in your opinion what way would you see it happening obviously government have money for different stuff so maybe just like change how much they give for other areas if one area doesn't need as much as they are giving just lower it for that area and just move it to another area what if I told you that there's £2.6 million going into a new media conference room at Downing Street? How, what's your opinion on that? Uh, that's definitely unnecessary. And yeah, that's the example of what you could give to NHS rather than on this conference room. Yeah, definitely. And do you see this pandemic actually ending on Je- June the 21st? Well, definitely not. I just hope that at the moment it's like enough to to be controlled that they believe that we can actually go back to more normal without like increasing the number of cases and the NHS and everyone world people are able to control it in a better way because maybe now more people is like uh, resistant to the virus maybe some more people had the vaccination and hopefully it will stay smaller numbers but it's definitely not like oh yeah the virus it's over like And over the past year, how would you say your life has been affected and what have you missed most? Uh, I mean, just like socializing and going out, but not going out for like drinks, restaurants. I don't like even care about this, just like going out even to a stupid gym because I at the moment I don't have like much space at home to exercise. So my exercising is really weather dependent. And also the other part was just the uni because... I know that they tried everything the best to do it, like the best they could, but to be honest, in compared to first two years, it's just like really hard to get over. And this is my final year, so it was like a lot of things and it's just not as good as it could be, but yeah. So are you still in student halls at the moment? Yeah. And how has life been there? Have they managed to implement anything? Have you seen any changes there? Uh, Well, obviously there was a lot of posters and they tried like they were saying oh keep distance don't make parties obviously like each flat was supposed to be like a bubble so you were not supposed to meet with other people although you are living in a same accommodation but um yeah like they try to do it and i try to follow these rules i don't know about other people like i heard from my friends that oh i've seen those people making like a flat party and i was like oh great i'm just sitting in my flat trying to like follow the rules so what do you think of the NHS pay rise of just 1%? I think it's disgusting. I think at the end of the day, they're in the hospital saving people's lives. They should be recognised for that. And did you know, though, literally on the same day that Matt Hancock released a statement saying there was £2.6 million invested into a new media room in Downing Street? Yeah. 
So what do you think of that in comparison? Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. It's all one thing for one and totally different for the others. During the, the whole pandemic, what the NHS have won, they should be recognised for it. It's not right. And do you think the clap for heroes has been any sort of recollection or any sort of understanding of just part of the job that they've done? I think, I think the, uh, the clap for heroes was absolutely a waste of time. I thought it was At just a trend. Day, it was just a trend, basically. It was like, oh, and I think as well, they, they kind of suggested that as if to say, right, so it kind of keeps them in the job so they're not complaining. Do you understand what, what I'm saying? So it's like everyone's clapping for me. Oh, this, this is great, we're being honoured, but they're not. It, it was like it turned into a trend, I thought it was. And, and even at the end, I think the nurses realised, like, stop doing it. I think it was 10 weeks or something, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 What have you guys missed most during the last year, as it were? What's the few things that you would say, damn, I really miss this? Ordinary life. That's it's what it is. Being it's just able to hug some the people you yeah, care it's about. It's just ordinary life. It's being able to do the normal things that you can do, which has been restricted. Just having a conversation with someone down there, just someone. Or sitting in the pub and having a few pints with your friends. It's just the simple things, and you don't realise until the big things when they've been taken away from you. And do you think on April the 12th or January the 21st these dates are still going to be remained or do you reckon they're going to change? No, they'll change it. They'll change it because they're already using the Brazilian one, aren't they? As the excuse. That'll come next. They'll say that that, that that's going to become the wide next pandemic. So they're going to use that as an excuse to keep us back into lockdown. I think as well, like, it's the, changed the, public... the dates five times, hasn't yeah. it? Five times he's changed the dates, extended it, extended it, extended yeah. it. He's going to keep doing it. I think the public as well, they've lost faith in the whole thing, the government, the lack of trust. It's And the lies, at first we thought, oh, great, you know, Boris really cares about us. He cares about our health, our safety. But then it's become a, a, a point where I thought, what, what, are they, what are they playing at? Like, they're taking away people's freedom. Like, we're not allowed to do anything, simple as things. You can't travel up the road in case you're going to spread the virus, but then you can actually spread the virus on your street by speaking to your neighbours. None of it makes sense. No, I think the best, the best way to get rid of a pandemic is to make sure that the majority of the population have had it to build immunity, not keep stalling it. Let so many thousand people get it, put us into lockdown, and then do the same, do the same, do the same, do the same. Yeah. They need that half of the population needs to get it to build up the immunity. So they've got the immunity to fight it off next time. So then it's less time to do lockdown. He's, he's messed up the whole country well, by doing this. to be honest, this. I think as well, at the start of it all, if you think like January last year, you know, Boris already heard about this virus. It was ravaging through Europe. And he, apparently what I read on, on the newspapers that he laughed it off like it wasn't so... I think he was kind of putting it in comparison to the Ebola. Like, well, it's not going to come here. What's the possibility of that? Because there was something where I was saying, oh, I'm shaking hands with people and look, it's not happening to me. I'm... I'm yeah. going to continue to shake hands and then three months and later, two months later, yeah. we're on a lockdown. The masks, they said back in April that there's not enough scientific evidence that the masks are going to work. And then come four months later, they're saying, right, we've all got to wear masks in public when you leave your house. And I'm thinking, like, but hang on a minute, you, you had scientists, doctors coming forward. It's contradicted every single thing that he said. Yeah. It's all lies. It's yeah. all lies. And are you guys going to get the vaccine or wait? I had it yesterday. Oh, right? okay. And to be honest, eh, I feel like crap. I, I was fine yesterday. Last, to see, I've just felt cold, like shivers. And I feel I'm aching all over. I've just actually took some ibuprofen before. Like, I do, I feel like crap. I had mine three weeks ago and I'm totally fine. 
totally yeah, fine. Yeah, he had a temperature, didn't you, like, the yeah. first night? And he was fine, but, gosh, I feel like I've been crushed, though. And have you guys had the second vaccination? No, what, what? I'm due mine in a couple of weeks. But if we're to get, try and get back to normal, the way that he's saying that we've got to do it, for us to eventually get back to normal, for life to get back to normal, we've all got to have it. So we're in that situation where if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to get back to normal. But if you do have it, then you get back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think they're going to go on vaccination cards in order to maybe travel abroad this year? I believe that. I think this Spain, I think there's already, you know, rumours come from somewhere, don't it? There's no smoke without fire. And already I've been hearing, like, about the passports, like, they enter, like, like, um, pubs, clubs, arenas, everything like that. I think that's something they're going to do. It's been suggested that, um... The reason why is is lifting the lockdown by the twenty first of is it July, June, June, twenty first of June. It's to give businesses and pubs and and places of workplace like that the preparation to get started, so that when people come within the three months they have the vaccine, the companies are ready to have to make sure that you've got the passport to be able to open because mm. it's already been rumours now that certain places have already saying that if you can't come in unless you get your vaccine passport with you so mm. if it's true whether it's whether you've got to have it to get back to normal but it's the same for situation when I it's contradicted that as well he's saying that you can't force people to have it you can't he's saying that you, you, it's it's your own discretion whether to have it but if you don't have it you can't get back to normal he's a fucking idiot he is. <laughs> so, but he is, so he is. It's contradicted absolutely everything that he said. He says one thing one minute and then another thing the other minute. And then he goes back and re- re-changes the, the, the question with the same answer. Now, I would be surprised if everything's back to normal on the 21st of June. And if the 21st of June comes and I wake up and everyone is out on the street saying they're hugging everyone, I'm going to be like, damn, like, what the hell? It just shows that a date is literally... A yes or no. Yeah. yeah. It's not. I think it's. I personally think it should be the NHS making these decisions. But yes. What do yeah. you reckon? One hundred percent. Because they're the ones who's got to deal with it, aren't well, they? On the front line. Would you, do you remember last year? Where not last year? It started the year before, didn't it? I think it was around August last year when he was talking about doing the data, only going off the data. So if he's going off the data from the ONS then basically that's data from the NHS. It's, all, it's always been about how many deaths, how many people have been infected and how many people have been hospitalised. So that data is only coming from the NHS. That's coming from the nurses, that's coming from the hospitals. So at the end of the day, it should have been about that in the first place, not now about the vaccine. So the first question that you asked about, should they be recognised more? Of course they should be. I had cancer four years ago. And he saved my life with all the treatment and stuff like that. And mm. they will do anything they can to try and help you as much as possible. Mm. And for the fact that they're only, well, a standard nurse is only on about 12 grand a year. It's fucking ridiculous. Because I believe that the NHS are saying that they have to raise their own union fund, I think, mm. of £35 million in order to... Because they may potentially go on strike over this 1%. I hope so. I hope, I hope to yeah, do. They need to. I hope yeah, so, yeah. Because it's not right. It's not right at the end of the day if they're the front they're the front runners of the pandemic but they're not being recognized for the job that they're doing no this is the cla- this is what i'm saying about the trend in the clap it was making them the feel because you've got to understand as well yeah, when he encouraged when, it at first yeah he's encouraged it saying oh everybody go out at 8 p.m and clap for your nhs did you that's see that's to take the strain and stress from yeah. them did you see 
like towards the middle of the pandemic when the case was getting higher and more people were dying. And then you could tell the nurses, I mean, on social media, they were crying, they were deflated, they were tired, they were drained. Eh? And then all of a sudden, it's this clap of recognition for it. And it kind of gave them kind of a staying power. You know, we're going to have to carry on now because all those people are watching, they're depending on us. Yeah, Do you and know now they're getting a kick in the teeth when yeah. they're only getting a 1% yeah. pay rise. Yeah. Because I think it sh- they're, they're saying it should be at least 12.5%. At least. Oh, yeah, of course. I said if, that. If, if, even if they're just going to get the 1%, they should just get, at least get a bonus oh, yes. for the whole reason of the pandemic. Yeah, like a they pandemic sh- yeah, bonus. Yeah. Yeah, a whole should've. 2020 bonus just for them yeah. rather than everyone. Yes, yeah. rather than everyone else. I think it ju- just to them, completely to them, 100%. Because I find it silly the way that, say, like sporting events are open and they're absolutely fine to carry on with their yeah, industry. Yeah. Understand that there's no audience, but they're still getting all their money. Oh, of course. But then there's un- industries like myself, maybe you guys as well, that mm-hmm. might still be on hold. I don't know what exactly well, a lot you work of, Well, for. A, a lot of people at the moment, they're basically, they're on their ass, aren't they? They're suffering mental health has gone through the roof. You know, I was watching a radio show about two months ago and it upset me. There was a, a man a grown-ass man, and he was crying his eyes out because of the, the state he's in, his family, everything. It, it was heartbreaking. He, he, he fully lost his business. He, he had a business worth over one-point-something million pound. His annual turnover was about 200 grand, and it gone down to about two grand. Yeah, he's had to pay everything off. He's had to sell his business. It's... Yeah. And then, but, um, and then you've got Boris there eh, telling us all, oh, you know, you need to stick together. We need... These people are suffering. No, to be honest, eh, I was against the clap. I didn't go out once. And I actually said people are sticking together. In this pandemic, everyone was for themselves. Oh, I never come across in my life so much selfish behaviour from, from the MPs down to people in society. So that makes me ask the question, you know when they say you are not alone, but you are... So, you, you are what, what do you make of that sort of statement? Alone. I, I, I've never felt so alone you in my life. You, you're 100% alone. That's just another way for the government to make you feel like they've got your back. They're together. there to help you. It's the same with the furlong. What, what was the whole point with the furlong? It was absolutely stupid. Why give someone... A sh- uh, 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 is it How much would he get him? Was it less than... Well, it was 80% first, wasn't it? And then they had to drop it a little bit the second time in lockdown. I mean, they kind of reduced a lot of things when we went in the second lockdown, didn't they? People's complaints saying, but I'll come back in March, April, we were getting this, but now it's, yeah. It's a tricky one to sort of resolve, but when do you reckon it will be resolved? Do you reckon it will be June or are we talking autumn, maybe even winter, Christmas? I think it'll be... It's hard to say, isn't it? We'll just have to wait and see what it says, because at the minute with, with, with this new Brazilian one, they're saying that they found the person who's infected people, but... What other excuses can I come out next? Because it was the brilliant one, Brazilian one, wasn't it? Then it, it, we had the African one. Um, obviously the first one, which came from bats in China, which I've never fucking heard of in my life. And now, well, and now what is it, the Essex one? Was the an Essex one as well? What one down south? Then yeah, not a hundred percent. We just need a Manchester one now, and a I Birmingham th- and Scotland and Glasgow. Well, I think Northern Ireland one. Why not? Why the not? Thing is, I think the next excuse will probably be is not enough people are getting the vaccines. They're afraid. Well, that's what they're trying to yeah. do now, aren't they? Did, did, did they say that by by the end of next month that they want every adult in the country to have the vaccine, the first vaccine? 
From you guys that have already had the vaccine, do you think it is quick enough that they're doing this, or do you reckon they are sort of longing it out? Yeah, at the end of the day, the, the first, the, when the first, when the vaccine first came out in December, it was December the eighth, wasn't it? Mm. When they first started vaccinating people, the first people they should have rolled it out to would have been every single adult in the country, but also the people who were working every day. We had a gas boiler in our house a couple of weeks ago. He said that he's not stopped since the pandemic started and he must have visited at least 300 homes. Now, he went to one house at one time. He went in the house to fix the boiler and when he left after he fixed the boiler, the, the bloke who owned the house, he rang him up and said, listen, my whole family's got COVID. And he, he said, so he said to me, he said, why didn't you tell me this before I come in your house? We he said, he said yeah, I said, I need my boiler fixing. But he said, I've just left my house to go to my mother's who's fucking ill with cancer. So he's saying... Do you know what I mean? So that's where I think, whereas people who were working every single day in shops, factories, businesses, they're the ones who should have got it first to stop, because that would have eased the spreading of it, and then adults and then children. Yeah, I, sh- I think it should have been treated like any other needle would get, like the MMR, where it's just basically everyone's entitled to come forward and get it. I think when it, it, I think when you're doing certain age groups and certain, I think it takes longer, the process, well, it is, to be honest. Because that's what he's doing, he's dragging it out. He's Especially it when out, they were saying as well that the younger people are the spreaders. Because, you know, these young people, they're not going to stay at home. You know, you go on social media and you still see them in the kitchens with the friends in the house and the party. And at first I thought, oh, my God, yeah, but they're only young as well. You know, they've been told for the past year and a half, you've got to do this. It's going to come a point where you're just going to get sick of it. You're going to get sick and tired and thought, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. At the end of the day, we'll see what happens. I don't think mm. it's going to be the end of it. Not, I think not maybe 2022, me. I think it might yeah. be. I think we might see a little bit. Of, I think well, a bit of normality. Last Christmas last year, when the pandemic was rife, when he said to us, "Right, come summer, we'll get it sorted. Um, hopefully, we'll start locking it down." And then Christmas came, didn't it? December last year, mm. and then he said, "Right, Easter. Easter's coming up now." Now it's going to be July, summer again, and then summer's going to come, it's going to be Christmas again. So no one can have faith in what he's saying because he's constantly contradicting everything that he's saying. I think people is like now in that mindset is, if it'll be, it'll be. Just see what happens. I think everyone's lost faith now. No one's one's excited anymore. It's like when the news of the vaccine came out, I thought, oh my God, this is brilliant. This is like, you know, the Holy Grail and all, but no one's excited about it. Do you just think this is a circle that at the moment you can't see ending? To be honest, a few months ago I thought that I would never get out of it. And then when the news of the vaccine came out and then they'd done a data on it, you know, that, you know, it's dropping, you know, deaths. <laughs> I am feeling a little bit more optimistic, to be honest, this time than what I was a few months ago. A few months ago, if you asked me, I thought, you know what, we're going to be like this for the rest of our days. We, we don't know, do we? We've just got to wait and see. Uh, if, if he was straight and honest and straight to the point, throughout the whole two years of it even starting then people would be a lot more optimistic and obviously happy that it but we just don't know do we we don't know only time will tell so there we have it a very very honest interview there from people who i didn't even expect to come and approach me let alone them spend that much time speaking so honestly and openly to me about such a sensitive topic at the moment that is affecting everyone's lives now The 1% pay rise there, most people did not agree with it. However, there is one more person that I spoke to this week, an NHS worker, Megan, 
who has been working relentlessly throughout the pandemic, but also previously, as this is her passion, this is her career. However, how she dealt with it, I went to find out and whether she thinks that 1% pay rise is actually acceptable. So I'm Megan and I'm currently working at a GP practice in Salford um, and I've just recently become a clinical code and summarizer there. Um, so that was quite recent, but before that I was working at a GP project on the Keys, um, so the GP practice, um, which worked. Um, so that's changing hands, so I moved from there to where I am now. And what made you want to change? So obviously... I was originally a receptionist um, and obviously an engagement liaison. So we worked quite closely with patients. Um, and I think be, being in that job anyway is quite a difficult job. Um, and I think the pandemic just made it quite a lot more difficult. Um, obviously, patients were needing a lot more of, lot more support. Um, the, the type of population we had down at the Keys was quite, quite a, a needy population. Um, and it, it can be a really difficult job. It's nonstop. Um, you're constantly helping patients, and they, they need constant support. The NHS is completely inundated. Um, and it's yeah, it's just. I think for me, it was. I needed a, a sort of a change of scenery in the job I do at the moment. Um, it's a really important job, um, but it doesn't have that contact with patients, so it's quite a lot more laid back and reserved for me at the moment what what would you say do you think needs to change then in the nhs from your opinion i think i think personally staff we they just don't have the staff at all it's the staff they have got are amazing and they do they do a great job but they are being worked to the bone absolutely to the bone and it's there's just a constant need there and they, they can't get the staff and it's probably due to the i don't maybe the way they're treated, the management, I don't know if it's to do with, obviously, they're not very well paid, um, and obviously to do with the, the constant rising population. Um, they just can't seem to get the staff to be able to help the people that need their help, really. Although there might be more staff, though, would you think there would be enough facilities and space? No, I don't think there's enough space anyway. I mean, as fast as the NHS can grow, the population grows with it. So I think as fast as you are putting new facilities out there um, bringing in more staff, I think personally it's just it's going to always be overrun. What have you seen yourself personally in the last year that you've sort of missed or has changed for you the most that you want to go back to back to where it was? I think every complete everything has changed and everything's still continuing to change now. Um, I think to be honest, some of it's changed for the better. Um, so having a lot of consultations online, um, even able to, people being able to manage their healthcare on the move from home, they don't need to come to hospitals or surgeries like they used to for the majority of things. I think like ninety percent of stuff can be dealt with, especially from a GP practice point of point of view at home. Um, I think obviously it's just with the not having their face to face with patients, a lot of things can be missed. So you can especially when it comes to a lot of like safeguarding stuff, it is getting missed because you, that patient isn't there in front of you to see to be able to physically observe the patient. And does that come with more challenges then from if you were face-to-face? Would it be easier? I think, yeah, and I think from speaking to clinicians themselves, it is being more difficult because trying to address things that they would easily be able to address in surgery um, or pick things up 
or things like that, they they can't they're struggling to do it at the moment because they can't necessarily have a, everyone in surgery like they used to are in the hospitals. So I'd say yeah, things it is more difficult in that sense. Things are more likely to be missed. Yeah, I mean it's it's I don't know what sort of age demographics there, but it's easy for us to sort of say, oh, we'll be okay or there'll be a higher chance of yeah. us being all right in the longer term. But how do you find it with the older generation? There must be quite a few of them there as well. Yeah, we do have quite a lot of um, the old generation. And I think with the old generation, they tend to be more like, I don't want to be a burden. Um, every time I speak to them on the phone, like, I don't want to bother you, I know you're busy or it's, I'm fine. Um, I don't need. I don't need any help. I mean, we've had problems where, obviously, they don't want to go into hospital. They don't want to come to surgery. They don't want to bother us, and they've ended up being really genuinely ill, um, because they feel like we're too busy and they don't want to bother us. They'd rather just stay at home. And it's yeah, it's been absolutely yeah. crazy. But I think the older people tend genuinely tend to be like that. They don't want to bother us. Think we're too busy, and they would rather just try and self-manage it at home but obviously that's no good so do you think that's just the way that the generations are it is to do a lot with generations I think a, a lot with the younger generation the younger population I think a lot of mental health comes with it as well um a lot of anxiety so they get a lot of anxiety about the issues that they might have the medical conditions um they have a lot of anxiety with um trusting ourselves um to make sure that we are giving them the right treatment but I think they are a lot more anxious and a lot more, I'd say, willing to come to us for any any slight problem, no matter how small it may be. Um, they they will make sure they they'll, they'll come and check in with us for absolutely anything. Whereas the older population tend to be more, I don't want to bother you with anything. Yeah, hey, like you must get a whole mix of different people wanting your attention, as it were. But um, yeah. do you feel like? sometimes you build a rapport with one person more than another or your patients in general? Yeah, 100%. We have um, certain um, patients who will sort of want that relationship with us. And I, we have patients who will ring up and they'll, they'll want a conversation. They, they probably don't really have anyone to talk to um, or they don't really have anyone around, especially during this pandemic. So you can be on the phone to one patient just for an hour and it's just a general conversation, not anything about the health. They just want someone to talk to. But then we have the patients who obviously they just want to ring us, they just want to get what they need, and then that's sort of it. But yeah, we have a lot of patients who who see us as someone to speak to, someone to to be there for them, I guess, someone to you, support them. You feel like sometimes they just want to be part of sort of like a community. Sometimes. Yeah, hundred percent. We found that with a lot of patients, that was sort of one of the things we sort of studied at the down at the Keys. We looked at getting a Keys community together, and we spoke to patients. We had some talking to each other and we were going to arrange to do things in the community with them and a lot of patients were really willing to get involved especially at the key they're so socially isolated a lot of these people come from way out of the area they live in these apartments and especially with covid they've not had the chance to go out and meet new people and make friends in the area um so we were planning on obviously getting these patients together and doing walks on the keys doing runs setting up football football groups etc um, and they were all really willing and open to do that. Obviously, they needed someone to talk to, they needed the support, and I guess it's nice to just get to know people in your area as well. I mean, people in your area, that definitely happened on Thursday night with the Clap for Heroes. What's your opinion on that? So I think it, it, was, it was nice. I think it definitely helped to build a bit of morale and a bit of a confidence boost for the staff that were going out, helping with the pandemic, and 
these people were going to work or and they were seeing that the communities were supporting them and that obviously people were were grateful for what they were doing and it, it was nice to see obviously everybody coming together all across all across the UK and praising them for what they were doing, not just the NHS but other key workers as well. Um because obviously any key worker that's been working through this has been going through the same the same things, the same feelings, the same problems. So yeah, it was definitely nice to see. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And then after a while, you've got sort of 10 weeks of the collapse. And then after a while, you think, what's actually changing in my life? I kind of want a better me outside of work rather than just thinking of it as a title. What do you think of the NHS pay rise of only 1%? What's your opinion on that? I think it is a little bit of an insult to them. Um, I think any NHS professional um, would probably agree with the same same thing um so the government are obviously saying that they've got tight budgets etc um but then they were getting quite hefty pay rises during um the pandemic so obviously they're just seeing it as obviously where well where's where's the money for it where is the money for the nhs um who's putting this money and if not where is it going what's happening with it and obviously we've got to remember that any any clinical or health professional who has been going out during this pandemic has been putting themselves at risk They've been putting their families at risk, the people they live with, the people they love, to go out and help save other people's lives and help look after people. And yeah, it is it is our job. We this is we signed up to it. The NHS we signed up to care for people and look look after people. That's obviously what we wanted to do when when we started working for the NHS. But at no point did anybody ever think that we would be working in a pandemic and be risking our own lives and risking help risking the health of our families the health of ourselves just to help the government and they're just not obviously they're not repaying people for what they're actually doing these people even before the pandemic were not paid enough I, I don't I don't feel any NHS professional is paid enough at all no as you said there I mean everyone goes through it whether you're an NHS worker a care worker a supermarket worker in these days yeah emergency blue light should we call them police fire yeah. you know but that you said there about your your pay rise there was I think it was 35 million pounds that the NHS union have had to put together because of a possible strike action as well do you reckon these are just pure emotions that have just built up over the course of maybe a year? I think it's definitely a build a build up of frustration, I guess. Um that obviously that these people I see them day in, day out. They 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 work hard and they work overtime and they're doing it for the lives of other people and it includes the they're working to help save the lives of if the government. If look at Boris, he went into hospital and he was looked after by the NHS staff and I think it's definitely a build-up of frustration, um, anger, and obviously just upset, I guess. These people, a lot of them as well, spent a lot of time away from their own families um, during the pandemic to protect them. So they were isolating themselves to help care for strangers, I guess, people that they don't even know. And it's, it's been a difficult time for everyone, I guess, and especially at the beginning, it was quite scary. Nobody knew what was going on. And everyday key workers were getting up and they were going to work and they didn't know if, if this pandemic was going to be even bigger or worse than, than it is now. And they were still getting up every morning and they were still going to work and they were still doing the job. How do you think 
I mean, is this like the, one of the first times you've seen a new sort of problem, world global problem within the NHS? I think it was, we, we obviously the first couple of days, first couple of weeks, everybody was um, obviously in a state of shock. Um, we didn't really know what was going on. Everybody was, I guess, kind of scared, worried, um, nervous. Um, and then we sort of just, we had to pull together. We had no choice to pull together um, as a team. And obviously we have outside, um, we have outside our, our priorities as well and just put plans together because these patients were our priority. They were still, they were still contacting us. They still needed our support, they still needed our care. Um, and we couldn't do it the way that we were originally doing it. And we were literally given, what, 24, 48 hours notice. And it, we just had to pull together. We had to change our plans. We had to change the way we worked. Um, we had to put new systems in place. And we, we had to do it quick, really. We didn't have a choice. Did you not get priority from government? Did they not tell you anything or any, any message that was passed down? Was there nothing at all? No, like no, no. We knew the same at the same time that everybody else knew. Um, so obviously, we found out over the radio, through the news. Um, we had no, no pre-warning that it was going to happen. I, I spoke to doctors and nurses, and they didn't believe that a lockdown could happen. We were all in the state of there's no way that that can happen there's no way they can lock lock us down there's no way they can basically shut the country down so I think it come as a bigger shock because I'm speaking to people who obviously are in the quite high up in the healthcare profession and they didn't even believe that a lockdown was possible I mean with a lockdown obviously no one was expecting it and stuff like that but then working through it some people might think, oh, maybe this job isn't for me. They, as you say, said earlier, oh, that's what we signed up to do. But some people might think, no, 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 this isn't what I signed up to do. Because here, Patricia Marquise said that there were 40,000 nursing vaccines when the pandemic began, and there was real risk of more experienced staff leaving. So there's obviously mm -hmm. some sort of research that has been done to say that there is going to maybe spark a problem with not only themselves and the job, but also how they're going to feel once they're back home. And once you're back home, you must feel that same. How do you deal with loneliness yourself? Or do you, how, are you living with parents? How lucky are you within this pandemic as a, as a person? Yeah, so I feel like I have probably been um, slightly better off than other people. So I, have, I do live with my parents. Um, I'm not on my own when I come home. Um, I have still had contact, obviously. We're all in work together anyway. So I guess there's people who maybe were furloughed and they were at home having to stay on their own um, and work from home. And that was sort of it. But I guess in a way, I did feel lucky to be able to go to work and have that, that social social aspect still of life because obviously these people I was quite close to have worked with for a while. Um, so they were definitely a really big support Um and it was, it was nice to have them around and it, it helped bring everybody a lot closer. Is there been people at work that sometimes come in and you know that they're not really from that same privileged background that you sort of have that stability at the moment and you kind of mm -hmm. want to do something, but as you say, you can't give them that much physical connection. It's just kind of tough. Are there any challenges in work that you kind of feel that are hard to overcome? There were definitely people who I guess didn't have anybody outside of work and were probably quite isolated. Um, but we sort of come together and they were doing things like um, bingo nights on Zoom at home for, for work. Um, they were doing like quiz nights. 
so that people could jump on and and have that social connection still um so work were quite quite good with it really they were they were really supportive and um obviously they gave us connections to people in case we needed to talk to anyone or we needed help um and they helped support us and they helped bring us together um and keep that connection there to make sure that nobody was suffering and obviously they made sure that they had an open door for anyone that, that needed that support really have they said about anyone else that may be suffering with that sort of fit feeling of being alone? Have they told you sort of a message to maybe pass on to the public or how does it sort of work within the hospital in where you work? Um, so basically we, we, make sure, we made sure that we got out messages to patients and to let them know that if they needed any support or any help, that we were there they could ring us and talk to us whether even if it, they didn't need anything from us um they, they, they were we were there all the time they, they needed our help we were there um and we did have quite a lot of patients who contacted us um who needed support we one of the things we did in surgery was we noticed we had patients who couldn't afford food um and were really struggling um so we we as staff got together and we created a food bank in work um, and we said to anybody who needed food, they just turned up to the surgery. We took a bag outside for them um, and they took that away home. Um, we, we did everything and anything we could to make sure that the patients, the patients were fine and that they were looked after um, and that if they needed anything, we were there for them. Oh, that's so nice because I doubt that it's every, every little community that, that does that. I suppose we sort of see how each other are living and we kind of, if we feel something, we know that they're also going through a similar sort of maybe thing or event sort of thing, don't we? Yeah, definitely. And I think I was quite privileged to have that support still there when I got home from work um, and even being in work. Um, so we thought, we thought to ourselves, obviously we're feeling quite, quite low at the moment we're feeling quite bad um obviously it's a big change we were trying to adapt to it too so we thought if, if we're feeling like this imagine how other people are feeling um so basically it stemmed from there and we did what we could to get together and help support these people that needed our help how do you feel like you can see the next maybe three months six months maybe a year going what do you think's the future of not only the people's health but how we travel and how we live essentially I think personally I don't I don't see an end in sight at the moment um if I, I guess I don't I, I don't want to get my hopes up too much um as for what the pandemic has done I feel like it's going to be long-term long-term effects um obviously we've noticed people financial problems um people are going to take a long time to recover from them even if they do um obesity has majorly gone up um which is already a burden on the nhs anyway mental health has increased massively massively which are always already was a problem that wasn't wasn't really funded enough and we didn't have the support there and patients were struggling to get help when it comes to mental health and they were completely unindated and that's gone absolutely through the roof now i just feel like it's gonna it's gonna be long-term effects and i, I feel like even going back back to normal or whatever is normal life the effects from this pandemic are, are going to go on for a long time there we are it doesn't look like unfortunately that for a very very long time that the effects and the aftermath of the coronavirus is going to go anywhere so a very big thank you to megan for giving me a massive insight on what's happening behind the closed doors such as the food banks and also how we as a nation 
are adapting to new life under new rules. Whether we're key workers or not, we're getting by day by day and we're adapting to this unique world that we live in. But in regards to episode three of What in the World, I just wanted to say thank you to not only Megan and not only Jack, but also yourselves for listening. Join me next time on What in the World, where I'll be speaking to more people about more subjects and finding out what you want to know. I'm Ollie Dennett. Until next time, goodbye.